0: So good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor, senior minister here at Knox. And um, it's my pleasure to welcome you, to add my word of welcome to what Sam said earlier. So we're into our second week exploring the drama of Scripture. We're going through the whole of the Bible. We're leaving out big chunks of it, for sure. But we are framing the whole story of Scripture and thinking of it as we do so, As being like a play in six acts so in God's story we heard last week the first act is creation the second act is the fall and we'll come to that today the third act is covenant the fourth is God sending his son Jesus and in the fifth act he sends us out as the church and in the sixth and final act comes the consummation or to unpack all six of these acts, a little bit more. Creation is when God establishes his kingdom. And soon after that, in our reading today, we learn of rebellion in the kingdom. And we refer to this in shorthand as the fall. And then God begins his redemption project. And the next four acts are really all God's redemption. First of all, he covenants with Israel, choosing a people for himself. And then in a climax to the whole story, the true king comes. And redemption is accomplished in Jesus. But redemption continues through the church as the kingdom grows in the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not until the final act that redemption is fully consummated with the return of the king. So we're going to see each one of those acts and understand better, I trust, how sometimes the little Bits and pieces of scripture that we read, whether in a devotional way um, during the week or on Sunday morning as part of the sermon, they all fit into God's larger story. And at the very center of this story is Jesus, in whom God has revealed his fullest purpose and meaning for the world. And so the Bible teaches that only in this grand narrative, this big story of God's grace and God's providence, can we discover the meaning of human history? And can each of us individually discover the meaning of our lives? Last week, we heard that in the beginning, God created the world to be good, and God gave it order. And so we saw that God created us in his image. We all are all image bearers of God's And our purpose, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. That is the basis for human flourishing. If we wanna live the good life, that is what God has laid out for us. And it's a scenario in which everyone is recognized and loved by God and everyone has equal worth. So it has dramatic implications for our life horizontally as human society. But there's more. We learn in Genesis 1 and 2 that we are sent out to cultivate the earth and also that we're designed for relationship. So first of all, God tells us to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. He calls us to take care of the garden in which he placed us. We're stewards of the world. We have this creation or this cultural mandate. God gave us work to do and to reflect his creativity. To enjoy the work. But God also made us for relationship. God made us male and female. It's not good for us to be alone. So we're created for community with God and with each other. And marriage is central to that. Men and women are different. But when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, they become one flesh. And so Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. And that's where we left it, this picture of amazing harmony. God tells them, you are free, but there was a limit. They were free to eat from any tree in the garden, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For God said, when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So in Genesis 3, we have the story of the fall of the human race. It's a very important piece in the puzzle if you want to understand the drama of Scripture. And I think it really helps to make sense of what's going on in the world, because there's a lot that is wrong with the world. How would you answer that question if somebody put it to you? In just a few words, what is wrong with the world today? Well, in 1910, a British newspaper, the Times of London, invited a group of prominent intellectuals and writers to answer that question by submitting a letter of a thousand words or less. G.K. Chesterton wrote the shortest letter in response. Dear sirs, he wrote, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. He was saying, I am. What's wrong with the world? Me, personally, I'm the problem. You don't hear that too often, do you? Most of us, I think, have a real sense that something is terribly wrong with the world, but we'd rather look elsewhere than into our own hearts for the explanation. After all, there are plenty of theories about what's gone wrong in the world. Maybe it's a lack of education. Maybe it's poverty. If you lean left politically, you might blame the right or vice versa. Maybe you account for social problems by pointing to the decline of traditional moral values. Or maybe you see religion as the main problem. But no matter what your explanation is, I think we all realize you can't explain it solely with reference to external factors. There is a problem within us too. At the very least, we can admit that. So how do we understand what that is? Well, today is Reformation Sunday, when we recall our rich heritage as Protestant Christians. You know that there are three branches of the global church of Jesus Christ, Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodoxy. Historians tell us that the Reformation started when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or arguments, disputations, to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany on October 31st, 1517. Well, Martin Luther also, elsewhere in his writing, gives us a compelling definition of what is wrong with the world. He says we are, writing in Latin, in curvitas in se, which means that we are curved in on ourselves. Luther writes, Man is so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes, and in all things, seeks only himself. The basic problem, according to Luther, is a life lived inward, for oneself rather than outward, for God to bless others. So today we're going to talk about sin. It's not a popular topic. I recently heard from someone who was new to church and they commented on the prayer of confession. Every Sunday we pray a prayer of confession. Nestor did that earlier in the service. To them it seemed like a downer, kind of a negative moment, not uplifting the way the church should be, the way a service should be expected to help us, to encourage us. And so I compared that moment in our service, the prayer of confession, to a collective reality check we all need. But I get it. We don't like to talk about sin. Sometimes people prefer to talk about what they've done wrong as mistakes. So the corrupt politician caught in fraud calls it a terrible mistake that he regrets. He'll never do it again. The unfaithful spouse admits they made a few mistakes. But is that really adequate? I don't think the word "mistake" covers the depth of what we're dealing with. A mistake is when you leave a can of Coke in the freezer for six hours, and then hear it explode, as I did last night, only moments after the Leafs lost in overtime. <laughs> Speaking of mistakes, I hope that's not any kind of deeper meaning about the Leafs season. Or it's a mistake. Clearly, it's a mistake when you forget. To pay your credit card bill on time if you meant to but let's face it sometimes we make mistakes on purpose right we plan them so what do you call that someone who carries out the same mistakes consistently concealing them the whole time a serial mistaker perhaps well the bible gives us a more adequate word and that word is sin and scripture also gives us a fuller explanation It says there is a sickness that has infected every one of us. There are no exceptions. And Genesis 3 is ground zero for the disease. And so in this chapter, we see, first of all, the progress of sin, how it is gradual, incremental, increases. We see, secondly, the dislocation of sin, what it does immediately in our relationship to God. And then we see the consequences of sin, the broader consequences for all of life for our relationships, for the world. First of all, the progress of sin. Where do evil and sin come from? If, as we heard last week, the world was made to be good, God saw that it was very good, God was pleased. Well, we want to know, of course, but we don't get the answer to that question. It has to do somehow with the freedom that God has granted us. And even though we don't get the answer, the full answer we might want, there are clues here. So we have a new player in Eden. There's a serpent at the beginning of this chapter. Earlier, in chapters 1 and 2, God was always referred to by his personal name, his covenant name, Yahweh, which is translated in English as Lord God. But here, the serpent speaking to Adam and Eve refers to God In his generic name. And Eve repeats that name. So the serpent doesn't deny God. He doesn't argue that God doesn't exist. He doesn't want to have a theological discussion. No, he speaks of God impersonally, distantly. He's planting seeds of doubt. And this is how sin progresses. The serpent asks, did God really say that? Are you sure about God? Maybe he isn't quite as good as you thought he was. Now, Eve could have just said no and walked away. After all, the serpent had twisted what God actually said. God said they were free to eat. It was language of blessing and abundance, but the serpent twists it, turns it upside down, and makes it sound narrow, inhibiting, restrictive. But Eve decides to engage the conversation further. Now, the church has always seen the serpent here as the devil, the father of lies. He distorts the truth, and we fall for it. In verse 4, the serpent tells an outright lie. He says, you're not going to die if you eat that fruit. No, your eyes will be opened. He's really saying that God, if you obey him, means to hold you back he's suggesting that god doesn't want us to be free and if you obey him you're going to miss out you won't enjoy life so satan doesn't deny the truth about god he denies the goodness of god he says you can't trust god you're going to have to take things into your own hands if you're going to make something of your life. And so curved back in on ourselves, we lose our bearings and seek our own interest. We say, okay, I know the Bible tells me to be generous with my money, to share my possessions, but I can't afford that. I've got a lot of expenses. There's a lot of stuff I want. Or maybe we say, I know the Bible says that I shouldn't have sex with this person I'm not married to. But it feels so right, and I kind of want it now. And so we're tempted, and sin progresses. That temptation only happens because, at a deeper level, we're not trusting God. Your heart is saying, if you obey, you will lose out and you will not be happy. And so, original sin is putting yourself in the place of God and acting as if your life is yours to do with as you please. The serpent lies and says, eat the fruit and you will be just like God. But the truth is that God is God and you are not. And every limit God establishes is meant for our health and flourishing. It's in our fallen nature to put ourselves in the place of God. So where in your life right now are you doubting that God loves you? Where are you doubting that God wants the best for you? Where do you see an obstacle to your plans for your life that has you wondering? Is there a particular struggle or maybe maybe a sense of disappointment That you're experiencing right now. The devil wants to use that to tempt you to turn away from God. How can you resist? Well, look back to God. Look to his love for you as scripture tells that story over and over. Take your struggles, take your disappointments to him in prayer, take your complaints, take your anger. And take them also and share them with Christian friends. Friends who will pray for you, friends who will support you, who will listen to you. Next, in Genesis 3, we see the dislocation of sin. In verse 8, God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Hebrew word for walking there is about more than literally walking. It signifies that God was looking for them, that he was seeking to enter into a deeper friendship with them. And what did we do? We hid. And so the dislocation of sin is immediate, it ruptures our relationship with God permanently. We know we're naked. The harmony that we saw in Eden previously is over. And what does it mean to be naked? It doesn't only mean physically naked. It means you're vulnerable, you're insecure, you're anxious, and you're going to run and hide. And so Adam and Eve hid behind the trees, which I think is one of the funnier scenes in the whole of the Bible. You can imagine them, right? Whispering to each other, he's never going to find us behind these trees. Sure, he spoke the whole universe into existence, but we've got a really good hiding spot here behind these trees, so I think we're gonna be just fine. I remember playing hide and seek with my kids when they were a lot younger. My son Callum, who's now 6'3", would hide his head under a pillow with the rest of his little body quite visible. My daughter Lily, our youngest, who's 17 now, would always hide in her bedroom. And I'd call out, Lily, are you in your bedroom? And she'd reply, No, I'm not in here, Daddy. Now that's adorable. But when we hide from God, it is tragic because not only does it fail to work, but it robs us of the good purpose He created us for. Again, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever and we hide from God by downplaying our sin. We say, I think I'm actually a pretty good person, at least compared to some other people. Or maybe we just refuse to think about it. Most of all, we blame others for what is going wrong in our lives and in the world around us. The man said, the woman, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then God asks the woman, "What is this you have done?" She replies, "The serpent deceived, and I ate." They're pointing to other people, blaming others. We do that also consistently. We blame our parents. They're always the first target. Or we blame our friends for letting us down, not being there when we needed them. Or maybe it's our spouse's fault. My professor was unfair my supervisor was out to get me. It's not us, it's always other people. And we hide behind fig leaves too. Religion is one great way to do that. I'll behave well and I'll go to church. I'll do the right things, but we can be just as dishonest with God and with ourselves in here. This story is our story. We have rebelled against God. Sin is running from God who wants a relationship with us. We hide from God and we hide from each other. We hide from ourselves too. We hide from God because in the presence of God, we see what we don't want to see. We see how far we've fallen short of his glory. But what's so remarkable is that while we hide, God always looks for us, waits for us, never gives up on us. Our nature is to hide. God's nature is to search for us. God asks, in verse 9, such a short, unassuming little verse, but such an act of amazing grace, God asks, where are you? Where are you? God's reaching out. It's an invitation. If we ever find God, it's because he first found us. But having looked at the progress of sin, having seen the dislocation that sin brings in our relationship with God, we need to talk also about the broader consequences of sin because they're terrible. From verse 16 on, we learn that life is now going to be full of pain, not just in childbearing, but for women and for men in lots of ways, including in their relationships with each other. Husbands had power in the ancient Near East to rule over their wives unjustly. And that would have been unacceptable in God's eyes. Men suffered also. In the next chapter, if you want to look and read on the consequences of sin, it's conflict between two men as Cain murders his brother Abel then there's the curse of work. The ground will yield thorns and thistles, and only by sweat, only as a miserable Monday to Friday grind, will you have enough bread to eat until you die and return to the ground. It's not a pretty picture, but it explains a lot of our experience in life. Like God had said, if you eat that fruit, you will die. We're created in God's image and have the stamp of eternity on us, but all of us face death. In the end, the disorder of sin leads to our physical disorder and decay, and eventually we die. I am a middle-aged man, and I can tell you there's a progression in that physical decay that takes place as you move from your 20s to your 30s and beyond. You feel it in the morning when you try to stretch. We know it's coming. We turn our thoughts away from it. In the meantime, we live with moral disorder. We see it all over. And so we resist God and his ways. We use people rather than loving them. We seek revenge rather than extending forgiveness. We live in a world of hurt. And so, what is God's response? to all of this bad news? Well, first of all, look at his kindness. Look at his patience with them. He doesn't get mad when they disobey the one limit they put on their existence in paradise. It would have been absolutely his right to do so. Those of us who are parents have certainly been there. No, he asks again this amazing question. Where are you? It's a gracious invitation. What have you done? Have you done what I asked you not to do? Why would God ask those questions? God already knows the answers. He's doing it for their sake. It's like he's leading them out of hiding and into the light, into the truth about who they are and how badly they need him. He wants them to confess their need for him, He wants to make it right. He wants to forgive them. God loves them, even though they have sinned. And he searches for Adam and Eve, but he wants nothing to do with evil. Second, he makes them clothes. So they go from having fig leaves to having leather clothes, the skin of animals. Having lost paradise, they're going to need something more substantial— protect them. So God offers this practical help, but we also see in this a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system of worship that Israel will be commanded to follow. It's also a reminder that we as the church don't only minister to the spiritual needs of people. We care for their physical needs. We do as God does here. We do likewise. God going out in love, God pursuing Humanity finds its ultimate expression in Jesus. God gives us hope for the sickness of our self centered hearts because He has undone what the serpent started. Adam and Eve were in a beautiful, peaceful garden, and God said, Obey me and you will live. Jesus was in a different garden, He was in the turmoil of the Garden of Gethsemane before He would go to the cross. And God said to him also, obey me. Drink the cup of my wrath. And if you do that, you will be crushed. Adam and Eve disobeyed. But the second Adam, the one we know is Jesus Christ, he obeyed. Though he was innocent like none of us ever could be, he obeyed and he did it for our sake. He went to the cross which you could see as a tree of death. And by his sacrifice, it became a tree of life once again for you and me. Jesus went under the sword, the sword that barred the way for people to come into his presence, the presence of God the Father. He took God's judgment on sin for us so that we could come into the presence of God all over again, be at home with him, walk with him, in the cool of the day. That is the reversal, the overturning of original sin. God frees us from the power of sin and death when Jesus puts himself in our place and takes the consequences of our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know this verse, some of us do, But here it finds its purpose in the overturning of death and sin. And I love the way we sang it earlier in the service. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If you have the idea that being a Christian means that you have to overcome your sin, that you have to do good things, work harder at being a good person, Well, I have news for you, and it's good news. To be a Christian is to admit the sin in your heart, yes. It's also to ask God to forgive you, knowing that thanks to what Jesus did at the cross, he rushes to your side with his grace. And then it's to trust the Holy Spirit to seal that grace and that truth. On your heart so that you can love and serve others so that you can experience God's reconciliation and be reconciled to others even as you're still finding it hard to trust God even as you may still be struggling let Jesus clothe you with his love let him make you new remake you recreate you accept the truth of what he's done believe in him And walk in that freedom and grace. On this Reformation Sunday, it's helpful to remember that the very first of those 95 theses for which Martin Luther is famous was about repentance. He wrote, when our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he meant the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. How are we living that out? Individually and as a church. I read something this week that said the biggest obstacle to the Holy Spirit coming among us in power, renewing us, bringing reconciliation, is our unwillingness to confess our sins to God, but also to each other. We hide from each other, we pretend. Are we willing to be honest? with our brothers and sisters. I think that's my main prayer after preparing this sermon for Knox, for you, for me, that we would have the courage to repent to God, but also out loud to someone in our life to tell the truth and to receive the healing, the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here at Knox in the city of Toronto and to the ends of the earth as it is in heaven. Come Lord Jesus. Two questions for reflection today as we ponder what we've read in Genesis 3. First of all, have you admitted, have you ever admitted to God that you are helpless in your sin and need his help more than anything? And how are you hiding from God right now? How could you turn back to him?